Come in, Ocean Sailor. Come in, Ocean Sailor. The Ocean Sailor Podcast. Brought to you by Ocean Sailor Magazine and Kraken Yachts. Hello and welcome to Ocean Sailor Podcast with me, Dick Durham, and him, Dick Beaumont. Um, this is the second part of our Guns on Board issue, in which we interviewed and we interview again Remy Timerson and his exciting stories of facing pirates. Uh, and this time we're going to hear what the uh, result of that was. Uh, we also, also had a poll and it gave you a chance by splitting the podcast into it, gave you listeners a chance to come in and vote on the poll as to whether you'd have a gun on board or not. So now we'll go to Dick Beaumont, who tells us a little bit more about how that vote was split. Dick. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Ocean Sailor podcast, wherever you are in the world. It was a very, very uh, emotive subject uh, we discussed, and I think uh, I could say, that, Dick, you were a little bit surprised at just how much interest there was in this subject. I was, I was surprised, Dick. Yeah, you'd said it was going to be, uh, uh, there would be a lot of interest in it. And I, whilst I don't doubt what you're saying, I thought, I, I thought, crikey, surely this is something people rather shy away from. But no, not a bit of it. There were, was a lot of interest in this issue. Clearly, it's one that, that uh, needed to be aired because there's a lot of uh, doubts around what you should actually do. So, yes, I found it, it was interesting. I, I think, obviously, it's a great deal less interest um for people that are not going off and around the world but for no, people sure. that are going off around the world i guess i'm going to say this and just as i'm thinking about it you obviously when you live in a country and you're in that country you understand uh, the security issues they might be high they might be low but you understand them and you become familiar what happens when you go off in a sailing yacht is you arrive somewhere brand new with no almost no background but you might have read a pilot guide or talked to a couple of other people but you're experiencing that place and its security issues if there are any for the first time yourselves and you can't help being nervous and wary and that wariness uh feeds into i think a hyper uh, awareness of any potential security issues if you go on Noonsight, very good uh, website, we've mentioned it before, and you look at the piracy reports on yachts, you will find that there's quite a lot of reports that say things like, I felt uneasy, I was sure something was going to happen, we were very conscious that everybody was looking at us, and blah, 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 but nothing happened. And I, right. think that's, right. I think that's largely because people are in this heightened awareness uh, that I'm talking yes. about. Um, and what's interesting about the... Uh, They're strangers in a strange land. Yeah, exactly, they are. And, uh, yeah, they are. Oh, it's why you do it, of course. Yeah, you know, of course, yeah. you, you go to these places yeah, to sure. experience how uh, yeah. civilizations around the world are very, very different. Um, and, of course, what we did is we carried out a poll um, and that poll threw up some interesting results. And it was actually around four to one against taking arms on board or having arms on board. Uh, and even surprisingly, um, with the American uh, uh, subscribers and voters, the result was two to one against having arms on board. That quite surprised me. I mean, I must tell you, 
amazing reactions though i mean one guy i won't name him he's he's in the magazine but he put <laughs> his, his article wrote in saying that it, essentially um he, the problem was that uh, the people weren't carrying powerful enough armaments this guy i think was anticipating having enough weapons on board to take out a small nation it was quite <laughs> yes the, a man of war he had <laughs> But anyway, it was it was a great subject, and there's much more to come. As I say, even in America, uh, and and I, I say even in America because I think the perception amongst Europeans is that everybody in America is pro guns, but clearly that's not true at all. No, um, I know there's a very strong anti gun lobby in America, but of course we don't see any of that. Or what we no. see outside of the USA is guns, guns, and all the problems that that they are actually causing. So uh, it was very, it was a real eye opener. It was very, very interesting. But I guess yes, you know, it, it shone a bit of a light on that issue, didn't it? Very it much did, so. It, yeah, it did shine a light on the issue, and yeah. and I think uh, the second part of of, of Renee's uh, podcast, which we're just about to hear, will throw even more uh, quandary into people's minds about what's yes. the right thing to do. I, I think it comes out in the end quite clear what he thinks. I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, Rene's experience uh, is is interesting, uh, but even he says this is just a one-off. Well, you don't know really what's going to happen. <laughs> no, you don't. And uh, uh, we don't want to give people the impression uh, that obviously everywhere you go in a sailing yacht, this is what you're going to run into. A very, very oh. small part uh, of the world does have these uh, problems. And what we're going to do in the next couple of podcasts is discuss, you know, the areas that you might avoid and, and, and precautions that you can take. So hopefully that's going to be quite interesting. Yeah, as I say, I mean, Rene, of course, who had a uh, an automatic weapon actually aimed at him. Um, and we know we heard about his reaction to that in this podcast that we've already broadcast, tells us how he feels about returning to such an area um, in this podcast, which was also quite surprising. Well, yeah, it, it is. It, or maybe well, it wasn't. <laughs> it, it didn't really surprise me because oh. I... You know, I mean, I didn't understand why he went there a second time, to be no, frank. Fair I'm, you know, I've, I've said that to him. It's not a big surprise to Rene that I thought he was mad going back there. That's what I suppose is what you call touch courage. <laughs> touch courage, yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, I, bet, I guess the best thing we could do is uh, listen to what Rene has got to say. Yes, indeed. And I think the listeners will find it very interesting because it is a genuine first-hand account from a top sailor uh, and a good guy, and not he's no shrinking violet, but uh, you'll see what happened to him. Out of the hundred boats that approach you, that are all skiffs in the Indian Ocean and Southeast Asia, uh, 99 are fishermen, and they just come and they come at raging speeds at you, and they want to know if you've seen dolphins, or they want to know, or they want some water, or because they have nothing on board or they want a t-shirt. 99 out of 100 are smiling guys with a fish in their hand wanting to sell you some <laughs> fish. Well, <laughs> when I when my boat Moonshadow, when I met you, we had Moonshadow, um, and when my boat was first built, and she was built in Taiwan, and I sailed her out of Hong Kong, and in preparation to going, just about everybody I spoke to said, 
oh, you're going to the Philippines. They're going to steal everything off your boat. They're going to rob you. They're going to do this. You're going to do that. Ah, and I left with quite a feeling of concern. And we sailed down um, from uh, Hong Kong. It's about a 600 mile trip um, to uh, Subic in the Philippines. Um, and about uh, 200 miles left to go, I was down uh, off watch having a kip. And one of the guy comes and uh, wakes me up. He says, uh, Dick, Russ is on the helmet. He thinks you, you should come up on deck. So I come, okay, I get myself straight out of bed. He said, oh, we, I think we got a problem. And uh, oh, right, okay, great, great way to wake up. So <laughs> I, I, I wake up, I run up in the cockpit and I said to Russ, what's the problem? And he points and in the far distance, probably still two, maybe two, three mile away, I can see it's quite a large fishing boat. He said, uh, well, that, that fishing boat, he said, I'm a bit concerned. So I said, oh, he's, it's quite a long way. It's just made a 15 degree alteration, of course. No, no problem. So he said, uh, yeah, but that's not it, Dick. He said, I've already done that three times. And each time he's corrected and come back head on to me. Ah, okay. So in the time that this is being discussed, he's obviously getting nearer. So I've got my binoculars and I'm looking out and, ah, oh, Jesus, they've all got black balacavas and now i can see there's an outrider skiff on either side and if you read up in all of the books and look for the the traditional method of piracy there's going to be the mothership and there's going to be the fast skiffs and this is it this is it so i got all the guys on red alert and I've, <laughs> funny little story actually what i also did as I, I i told two of them to stay below, stay below deck and as they got closer, keep popping their heads out of hatches with different hats on. <laughs> so it looked like we had twice as many people on the boat as we actually did. Anyway, they're now getting quite close. I've made an alteration. He's made an alteration. And now I am 100% convinced this is a piracy attack. And the guys are all revved up and, you know, obviously it's getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And, and now at the last minute, he's just 50 metres or 100 metres maybe off my bow, he's all of a sudden he makes an alteration. Uh, he makes an alteration to starboard and he goes past us about 30, 40 metres away from us, but going in the opposite direction. Ah, oh, total relief. Oh, what was all that about? He's just come for a look. And then he turns round. And so I see him doing it. He's faster than us. He's a big, much bigger boat. Uh, I can see there's a dozen guys uh, on board at least. And the, I can't even remember where the outriders are. And he turns around. And I've gone, guys, guys, we're still in trouble. We're, they're coming back. They're going to come alongside us. And he's come steaming alongside us, but he's not narrowed the gap. So meaning that he's caught us up, but he's now parallel to us. And right, okay, so what's going to happen now? And two of the guys suddenly dog down uh, into the hold, I guess, and come out holding up a tuna one, and the other one's got a wahoo, and the other one's got two lobsters. Ah, he wants to sell us fish, right? Now, there's no question, and we... I could tell you, we did stop and we did exchange. They had it. We gave them cold beers. Uh, we gave they wanted tinned fruit because they're out of sea for God knows how long at a time. There's no question if I had a gun, I'd have shot them. 
I, I definitely yeah. would have done. I know, I know I'd have been blasting whether I'd have shot more shot over their heads. And obviously I'd have been totally wrong. So I, I get your point there. But Renee, tell us about um your rules in particular in uh, in in the uh, convoy that you were involved in on the return trip. When we are heading back through the Indian Ocean, we thought it was wise to organize our convoy. At uh, that time, now we're speaking 2011, um, we've been sailing through Southeast Asia for four for years and um, uh, it was time to come back and we headed back to the, to the Met and we thought it was wise to organize our own convoy instead of being part of some convoy with rules that we didn't want to engage in. So uh, within moments, I mean, within a week, we had 35 people who wanted to join us. We called it the Thailand to Turkey convoy, TTT. And um, so we started organizing this and I made clear from the beginning on our first meeting, to my astonishment, there were hundreds of people there. And uh, I immediately said we had to set out some rules uh, about how we wanted to sail, where we wanted to stop, what the route was going to be, and so on and so on. And one of my first clear rules was no guns. There is going to be no guns on board. Not with you, not locked, not stocked. If you are a gun owner, you have to decide here and now if you want to part from it or not. And if you don't, then you're fine, be my guest, but then you're not part of our convoy. Because I don't want to be in danger. I don't want you to bring others in danger. And I'm definitely foreseeing that at some point uh, you probably are going to kill somebody and most likely also yourself. So that was the rule, and that is how we sailed out. Now, uh, to make a small, a short, uh, long story short, somewhere on the Indian Ocean, uh, we got in trouble. First of all, in the Indian Ocean, the, the rules had def definitely changed. In 2011, as you know, uh, that whole piracy thing exploded because the pirates now took the mother ships, which they had initially captured, uh, out to sea from Somalia with skips on them, sailed them all the way up in the northern parts of the Indian Ocean, then took the skips off and planned attacks from there. So suddenly, instead of being only in harm's way close to the Somali coast, now the whole uh, Indian Ocean was infected. So what we did, we decided to sail all around it. So we sailed from, from the Maldives all the way up the Indian coast, almost to Pakistan, then over to the Strait of Hormuz, and then as close as we could along the Omani and Yemeniti coast. That wasn't safe, but it was safer than all the other options. So this is what happened. And then on the Indian Ocean, I got into trouble. I got into technical problems. We had a problem with our gearbox that we couldn't get under control. We had to MacGyver it all the time, try to make parts and do things and to keep it running. And obviously we were sailing a lot, but I said to this group that was with me, uh, I said, okay, let's not keep each other in danger longer than necessary. You guys just sail on and we meet each other in the tip of the Strait of Hormuz. And this was what happened. And uh, we caught up with them in the Strait of Hormuz, just at the edge of the Strait of Hormuz. Um, 
And when I did, and on this first, it was four o'clock in the afternoon when we met each other, we, of course, we sailed into the night so, uh, north to south along the Omani coast, as close as we could. And I, we, we started because at that moment, the, 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 it was pretty dangerous. We said, okay, the rules are we sail under engine plus sail. Uh, yes, we are more visible with sail, but we also are likely to pick up more speed and maybe uh, save on some diesel and so on and so on. And during the night, we only have uh, our, our lights are dimmed. Uh, we only have very little tiny lights so you could see where each, where each one of us was. Uh, we wouldn't use uh, our VHF other than handheld VHF on low range, so on the low uh, uh, power uh, uh, transmitting uh, power, uh, one watt. Um, our radar, uh, radar deflectors were off. Um, uh, everything we could do to avoid making contact with others was limited. And uh, during the night, I because we were sailing so close together, you could literally see each other on board. And I noticed that some of the people of the group that I had been left out of for a couple of days uh, because of our problems, uh, they were discussing things on the radio. And I so, didn't... Really, really, you, you fell behind and then you caught up. Is that what happened? Yes, I fell behind and caught up. And when I came back, uh, of course, they wanted me to become their leader again because that was who I was. Uh, and then uh, I, I felt during the night that they were... Um, uh, discussing something, but I didn't hear them on the radio. So I went over to one of the boats very closely and there was a, a lady and a, and a husband from England and she was really feeling uncomfortable. And she said, yeah, yeah, uh, Renee, I've got to admit uh, there's a problem. I said, what is the problem? And she said, yeah, on the Brazilian boat, there was a boat from Brazil, there's an American crew and he has made us uh, make a Molotov cocktail. So now we all have Molotov cocktails on board and he's carrying a big gun. Oh, and and I, I thought I got a heart attack. Yeah, I thought this is not happening. Now I'm surrounded with boats in my convoy that all carry a, a Molotov cocktail. And the guy had a big gun, a, an American, uh, American military guy. So the next morning I made a bold decision and, and, and opened up the radio to everyone because we had these morning radios. And I said, listen, this is what's going to happen. Uh, this uh, Alondra, good morning to everybody. I've got an announcement to make. I know that you guys all have Molotov cocktails on board. I think it is the stupidest thing you can do because the, 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 the chances of hurting yourself while lighting such a thing and throwing it to somebody is much bigger than whatever can happen in this area. As I said, most people are fishermen, don't worry about it. And when there is under attack, you stand no chance, stand no chance with a Molotov cocktail. I said, the other thing is I've made it clear that I don't want weapons in this convoy. Apparently that and that boat carries weapons. I want this to stop immediately or you guys sail ahead and I'm staying here behind and I wait one day and will come after you or you stop here and I will leave, but I will not enter or join this convoy. Anymore. So, so, so Rene, you felt so strongly uh, it was a real bad move. 
you were prepared to carry on and sell on your own rather than sell. Oh, okay. And and what happened was I released the button of the of the transmitter, and I thought there was a would a silence would come. Of course, people were shocked that I I was suddenly coming up with this, and I released the button immediately. Oh no, Rene, yeah, yeah, this is uh, did it that boat. No, we're with you, and it really said, no, 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 we, yeah, no, no, we immediately tossed it. Well, we tossed it overboard. Now uh, we throw the Molotov cocktails overboard. The only one who didn't <laughs> respond, obviously, was the Brazilian boat with the guns on board, and that uh, took about fifteen minutes before his wife came back on the radio and said, "Yeah, we made a decision. We obviously do want to stick with you, and uh, we decided to throw the guns overboard." So that was the end of that. They they did throw their gun over. Yes, yes, threw them over. Wow. Okay. And then um, uh, I actually I said, listen, it's the only one. I, either you throw them overboard or you're not in this convoy anymore. Because in the meantime, and this was in the early morning hours, a fishing boat had appeared, and he was waving around with the gun on deck. And I thought this. I'm, I, I, that is where I really thought I was in the wrong movie. I thought now I'm, I'm entering a really bad B movie, and before you know it, this guy starts blasting away onto no one and nobody. You know what? You never know what might have happened then. Anyway, uh, Rene, can I can yeah. I come in there? Yeah, because this is very. I think what's come out of this is something very interesting, and that is. You are clearly anti-guns. You were faced with a gun. You reacted the way you did. Then in this convoy, these people had guns, but they were suffering from the cultural difference that you've already mentioned. In other words, they, they knew they couldn't really use them. What they wanted, they wanted leadership. And they felt that, that your leadership was worth more yeah, than their weapons. 100%, within seconds. You know, I'm not anti-guns. Yeah, You know, I'm... Uh, I don't, I'm not particularly a gun lover, but I'm also not so much against guns. Uh, I can understand that there is circumstances where a gun, if you know how to properly use it, is very useful. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing with guns is that if you have them at some point, you have to use them. So I'd rather stay away from it. But in this in this circumstances where people up front believe that they will enter into a, an equal uh, in a fight of equality uh, and where they're obviously not I can uh, uh, I have news for them they are yeah they're completely it's completely useless so yes it is and I only foresee trouble with them then really having achieved that the irony of the situation is you then did have, I think, another uh, yeah. attack. Yeah, about two days later, along the Omani coast, we were obviously very keeping very close to the shore. We were in daily contact with the MSCHOA, that is the American uh, Defense Force there. We were in daily contact with the UKMTO, which is the, the British convoy, the NATO we were in contact with. And a, and, a, and a number of loose, scattered uh, Navy vessels that were controlling on their own, one from Thailand, one from India, one from, uh, you name it, there were some 22 Navy vessels there. One thing to uh, noteworthy is they don't work together. 
Like if we are planning to do something together, the first thing we would say, okay, you do this and we do that. La, 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 la. We have 22 boats. Let's defend this area. They don't. So it's not like you call the UK MTO and then they, they, so you call the English and then the Americans will also know where you are. No, it's not. What does it work like that? You call the English. This is where we are. This is where we're going. And then you call the Americans. This is where we are. And this is where we go. And then you call the NATO. And they all want to know every day, every minute of the day. They have no clue of each other's behavior, whereabouts or whatever. So when we finally got in trouble, just as a side note, the nearest boat was 400 miles away because nobody is listening to each other. And with all 22, they're hanging around the Strait of Bapalmam Depth to make a quick score and tell the home front that they did a fantastic job with their Navy vessel. That's how it works, Dick. There's no team play. There is no working together. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, anyway, two, three days into the convo or into that stretch along the Omani coast, uh, on a sunny afternoon, I'd say, uh, suddenly there is uh, some, uh, I don't know, four or five skiffs uh, appearing on the horizon. And uh, our... Uh, um, um, our game plan always was that at that moment we would immediately close into each other, weather permitting, we would keep the sails on, but stay in very, very close range. And if you've done this a couple of times in the beginning, it's a little bit hairy, but after a while you get used to it, you can sail actually really close together. And our, ours were maybe 10, 15 feet apart. So diamond form, we would uh, sail all next or in each other's vicinity. And, and how many boat? How many boats is this? That, yeah. in in that part of the convoy, there were maybe ten, eleven boats. Okay, uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Anymore. I would have to count them. Anyway, so on each boat were some three people, three, four maybe, or two or three. But let's say all in all, there were some thirty to forty people in that convoy. And then um, three skips appeared, and as I've told before, they are there immediately. From the moment you see them, somebody sees them first as skips appearing, so you would immediately close in and start this diamond formation and now, uh, speed up, try to speed up as much as you can, but you're always bound to the, to the lowest speed in the convoy, which was in hours five and a half knots. Wasn't that the best speed we had? I had the slowest boat was five and a half knots. And then they started circling around us about a quarter of a mile away. And in, in big wide circles, uh, high speed. And sometimes they would, uh, uh, because they were circling clockwise and anti-clockwise. So they, they were sort of passing each other. And at some moments they were uh, stopping at each other and then uh, talk to each other and so on and so on. But they weren't coming closer, but they were also not going further away. And in the meantime, of course, we went on the radio to uh, on on the radio to call MSCHO and MK UK M or UK MTO and the NATO and Channel 16 and try to raise some attention. Um, we knew that there was a Dutch Navy vessel uh, uh, close by, uh, but they didn't answer. And of course, this radio was answered to uh, to others, and uh, that made it that they think I think they they sort of disappeared at some point. And 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 Reda, you've clearly seen they're armed. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, now you can't you can't see that from two hundred fifty meter distance, uh, but this was clearly not fishermen because they would have come for the approach and they come at you. You know that you've seen that. There were also too many people inside the boat. There was five, six of them in each boat, which is normally in a fishing boat not the case. And they had um, a tarpins over the front of the boat, which normally are there to cover up for a ladder or something. Um, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, not under, you're, you're not under any doubt at all that they're a threat to you? Yeah, that moment we absolutely... 100% sure they were a threat, yeah. And everybody else thought so. Eh? There was a clear understanding. Look, uh, while crossing the Indian Ocean and uh, while being in, 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 in that area, and you, as you have been, you sort of get to learn who's who. And you make the obvious mistake, like you've just said with the fishing trawler. We have sim had a similar thing where you think, wow, this is a little bit dodgy and you come out the right way. This thing was not disappearing. This took uh, one and a half hour, two hours of circling around us. Oh, really? Uh, really? Okay. This was not going away. Nothing changed in the situation. They were talking to each other. You could clearly see that they were making up their mind, minds about what to do next. But of course, uh, the, the sight of having that many boats very close together with only four or five skips to attack the, the bunch uh, doesn't probably make it, uh, well, it, in the end, they thought it wasn't feasible enough to make it through. And we were talking on the radio and it could well be that they had uh, VHF radios in which they were listening in on the calls we had. So, so they, uh, they kind of, they kind of might have thought that you're going to get some assistance and there's like 10, 11 boats together. And, uh, you know, it's, I guess what you're really saying is it wasn't the easy proposition that they were really looking for. Is, is that it? Yeah, I think uh, they were looking for a, 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 a we were, a, a, the, the, the fish was uh, just a little bit bigger than they uh, could chew. Yeah, and, and you know how that works, Dick. But now, and this is interesting, of course, and I've never heard the American back about it eh, later. Eh? Never came back to me. None of us, and because the, the, later we had dinners and we had barbecues together and whatever, none of us in that instance said, oh, oh what I would have wished to have the Molotov cocktails there. Oh, oh why, why didn't we have the gun anymore? Everybody understood from being there at that moment that it would have been the worst thing ever. The gu uh, guns would have been a liability to you. The guns would have made it, the whole situation, turned it into a complete disaster. Now imagine that they attack. Imagine that they come all at you with five, six boats, with possible 25, 30 guys in there and attack you. And they all are armed. What on earth are you going to do with your three little itty-bitty... Uh, 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 shotguns and you 25 Molotov cocktails. Where are they going to go? Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know that's that is a that is a hundred percent assurance for disaster. I think the thing is, Rene, um, I'm still very interested in that first occasion when you were uh, you had a gun pointed at you by one yeah. of these guys, and you and you 
you reacted the way you did with anger and surprise. You found you weren't frightened. There's nothing said, brave about that, Dick. Let, no, no, I'm not, no, 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 no. I, I totally, no, I totally understand that. You, you, I understand that you didn't fear, but that isn't because you weren't frightened beforehand, as as I might have been if I've been considering. I think, crikey, I'm just going to. Uh, anyway, point I wanted to make is that your reaction was one of of anger and how dare you do this. And the point is, he didn't fire that gun. If you'd had a if you'd had a gun and pointed it at him, what do you think would have happened? That is exactly what I'm saying, that I was no threat for the guy. No. I was not a physical threat to the guy. The no. only thing I was was a sort of a I was a threat as uh, obviously feeling stronger than him. Yes. And you he were causing him an issue. Yeah, it was an issue. You were a problem for him. You you weren't going to lie down yeah. and roll. And over. he he understood that I had the upper hand uh, mentally, not physically, yes. mentally. Okay. And and that's very interesting. And I think that may uh, turn the tide. If I would have had a gun, and and I, I would have drawn it, obviously. Because now I'm in the situation, somebody, if there was ever a moment to draw the, the thing, then yeah, draw it now. Now we're standing opposite of each other. And that is exactly where you lose. You lose yeah, sure. 100%. You've got a guy who has, you got you have a guy on the other side of the street that has no value of life or death, or at least no. a complete other value, who is dropped up to the rim. Yeah. So, yeah. what's your decision going to be? So, so the and, and the other the other interest is that with Dick's Dick Beaumont's experience when he had the the the, the you know fast boat chasing him and trying to board him with grapnel lines and all the rest of it. Fortunately, they didn't have a gun, so Dick's reaction was actually a bit more aggressive. Uh, he did a turn and uh, and tip the guy in the water, which of course you can do once you realise they haven't got guns. But I guess Dick. You might have felt a bit differently had they got a gun. Well, I might well have done it. And I know this sounds weird, but I didn't actually consider at the time that they might have guns. And, and obviously they couldn't have done because they'd have, they'd have drawn them, I'm sure, and, and started taking pops. But so obviously they didn't have guns. And in Papua, it's a funny thing because there aren't roads and villages can be 100 miles remote from the next village. And they are living, as I said, like a thousand years ago, uh, literally in, in, you know, uh, a very, in a very primitive way. So and it didn't even occur to me they, they might have a gun. But at the end of the six boats circling around you and, and all the rest, what, what happened, Rene? Again, in this, in this instant, uh, uh, at some point, uh, I, I think that we were a bigger, too, uh, 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 too big a fish to fry, and they, they called it a day after one and a half hour. Uh, obviously, we were heading out to sea uh, where we went. It went rougher, was rougher and rougher. Uh, we were not giving in. We were not changing anything of what we were doing. Uh, we were still talking on the radio very loudly and aggressively. And, and they, uh, at some point, told us they were going to send in uh, choppers. And I don't know, which they never did, by the way. Um, and, and So maybe they heard that on the radio as maybe. Right. You can only speculate. We were close under the Omani coast, very close. It was in, in, in sight. 
where you also may expect at some point that Coast Guard turns up. At that moment, the Armani Coast Guard was pretty active, uh, patrolling in small boats, and obviously they didn't want to encounter any one of them. So that whole situation just made it that they thought it's too close to the land, too many boats, they're talking on the radio, la da la da da let's not do this. What I was going to ask you was, I mean, it's very difficult, this, and it's probably an unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway. I mean, can you give any advice after this? I mean, what does somebody do? Oh, yeah, look, you know, people are most likely to buy a shotgun or something, yeah, because that's the obvious weapon to buy. Yes. Uh, but an eight-round shotgun... Uh, is not going to help you against no. any of the weapons that you are probably going to face. Sure. If you know that, for instance, in Yemen, and we were there on several occasions, uh, but also in Sudan, I've heard that, and, and, and other places, you can easily get a an AK-47 for around $100. Right. They offer them to you. Um, I would be very surprised. I mean, nobody's going to buy an AK-47. Everybody's going to buy an ordinary shotgun, which carries at most eight to 10 rounds, maybe with a subloader, uh, you can do maybe 12 or 14 yeah. gauge shotgun. It's not going to help you against an AK-47. And it's not going to be the only AK-47 you face. There are with four or five guys carrying yeah. an AK-47. And they use them regularly to fight each other off, to fight others. Right. And so, so unless you want to start blasting away immediately, and with a shotgun, you fire a round, and then you have to reload it, and you have to fire another round. And these guys just pull the trigger, and they're coming, and, and 20, 30 bullets are on their way. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, the whole thing, uh, in every of the instances that I had, because, you know, there were more during the eight years. Yes, we had a guy coming on board and one or two robbers and blah, blah, blah. And it all happened. Uh, none of them would have made sense. None. I've never seen it made sense yes. at all. The guy that wanted to rob us, I threw him overboard and that was the end of it. Well, yeah. You, you know, I, I want to come in here as well because... Uh... And I guess this is really the point, and this is the decision that, or this must contribute to the decision. If you are going to consider it, A, you've got to be very sure you're going to use it, and B, you must be professionally, you, exactly. you've got to be familiar with it. And all the professionals that I spoke, that we've also met at sea, who were protecting other boats, they all told me, as far as I've met them, they've all said, stay away from it. You're not, you're not fit to handle it. You're not programmed to do it. You're not in the sort of life that we are. Don't even go there. I mean, let's, go, let's, be, let's be real. You, you most likely, if you are European, most likely don't have a gun in your car. You don't carry a gun around. So why would that suddenly change when you are on a boat? Yeah. The environment doesn't really change. You meet the same sort of people, though they are in a different way on, uh, on the water. But for 99 out of the 100 cases, they will come in a friendly way. And in that incidence where they aren't, yeah, you stand hardly any chance at all. So 
Yes, I understand all this uh, clutter about it. I understand also the emotions that run around people trying to protect themselves and their boat and their family and whatever. Uh, but I have yet to find somebody that I thought was really capable of thinking like, yeah, this is going to happen and this is going to work out well. So I think, uh, Rene, um, that is what well my experience of what you've just said of course is second hand but it's now 20 years ago since possibly the world's most famous shotsman sir peter blake uh, lost his life in the amazon um, on an expedition when um pirates came aboard uh one of them was armed and he held a gun to the head of one of the crew sir peter blake pulled out a rifle shot fired and then then the thing packed up and he was shot dead course i i did interview lady pepper um the widow of sir peter blake at her home in emsworth and there all around the house were pictures of the family he was a family man you know uh, that he had he, he in my view it's a huge mistake to have had a gun and let alone pull it out on these guys in all they took in the end after this shooting was an outboard and a few watches you know i mean i'm listening to what you're saying and as i've just said to you the incident i had in Papua, and to be honest with you, yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I think I think what you're better off to do is consider ways that you might uh, better securitize your own vessel and uh, look at me means. Of course, avoid um, uh, areas that are are known to be a problem, and we're going to discuss that actually on the next podcast. Um, we've got uh, a guy coming on and he runs a security company called Mast, which is specific to seaborne security. Um, and he's going to tell us about particular areas of the world that we should avoid, because I think we want to get this, try and get this a bit in proportion. Um, you know, I've I've sailed my boat for best part of uh, 40 years, and uh, we've just talked about three or four instances I've had in areas that actually were quite well known uh, to be difficult. Uh, Papua New Guinea, in my case, in your case, obviously, um, you know, Pirate Alley running up into the Red Sea. Uh, let's, but let's face it, I've sailed all my life. And if you come down to what, it, what has happened, then there is a, a, a number of incidents that anyone could experience at any time. Somebody climbs on board uh, half drunk, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, let's not only talk about the bad things because uh, uh, 360 days a year, it's beautiful. Uh, Rene, I accept what you're saying that, uh, you know, the majority of the time sailing is great and going to these far flung regions is fantastic of course it is but nevertheless you uh, most people don't have uh, the dreadful incident that you uh, put up with once having a gun in, in your face and the second time being surrounded by clearly what were pirates with, a, with your young child on board now this did have a big impact on you which we wrote about in the magazine could you tell us about that yeah for sure but you know you have to understand that this was a period of the second time was a period of six months from January to July under huge stress. I was suddenly, I was the leader of a convoy that I didn't want to be in the first place, but uh, sort of was born out of necessity. 
uh, these people hung on to me like I was the Messiah, which I was obviously not. Uh, and and uh, then facing all these issues, suddenly the Indian Ocean turning into a piracy infected area much more as before. Then all the countries that we came to uh, under the Arabian Spring came under turmoil. It started in Oman when they uh, uh, protested against Qaboos, the Sultan. Then we come into Yemen and literally on the day we come and land in Al-Mukalla, having crossed the Indian Ocean, this, this city falls into the hands of Al-Qaeda. We're anchored off there. They start shooting at each other right in front of us. Then we come to Yemen or to, uh, uh, what is that, uh, Aden, Aden, where there was a complete civil war. Then we come into Sudan. They had just uh, uh, sorted out North and South Sudan. And then we come to Egypt, where they had just thrown out Mubarak. Yeah. So, oh yeah. And then in the meantime, I have to tell that I took my uh, uh, gearbox out on the way from Thailand to Cyprus 21 times. Hmm. And I had no source of repairing it. We just MacGyver this, weld the pieces on and rebuild it and, and putting extra discs in and whatever I did just to keep it running, not from running it well. It was, it, it, it sounded like an old diesel uh, lock, but we kept it running. So by the, time, it running. by the time you got back to the Mediterranean, not only had you gone sailed through the Arab Spring, <laughs> and not only had you been expected to be the Messiah, but you had a young child on board and you'd be surrounded by pirates. Yes, pirates. Exactly. You have a, a girl on board for two years old, and she's hopping around every day, uh, finding uh, everything. Uh, uh, I mean, when we saw pirates, they she saw. Uh, Look, Papa, there's men in the boat there. Yeah, yeah men in the yeah, boat. Yeah, sure. yeah, there's not the kind of men we want to see. So by the time I got into the med, and you you keep on going, as I said before, once you are on route, you don't think about turning back and all the difficulties you have. You just keep on going, uh, and then once back in the med. At some point, I come to the Turkish coast. I was so screwed up uh, that I, I literally left the boat for anchor that whole summer and nearly never sailed, uh, just wanted to rest and relax. And then years later, so my life continued and we stayed in Turkey where we bought a sailing company and all is fine and well until years later, now some four years ago, I suddenly started uh, um, uh, getting anxiety attacks and not being able to sleep anymore. And I was even afraid to go out on the boat. I didn't feel happy going out on the boats anymore. I was um, feeling sick, uh, physically sick and exhausted. And I, of course, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I, I, I really had no clue until I went to, to see a physician and then I went to see a therapist and, and they started talking about all sorts of experiences and they said, yeah, you're suffering from PTSD. and um, Post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, and, and, and uh, you know, there were moments, it took two years and it got worse and worse and worse where I, I thought of even stepping out. This is very strange if you have a family and 
from my background to at, at some point think like, well, maybe it's better if I'm not there anymore because then the suffering stops and I don't know how to, to turn this around. And then, yeah, two years of therapy, intense therapy, uh, got made me better. But, but I can tell you, and I never knew this existed. I, I had no clue what PTSD was. I had no clue what that would entail. Uh, but I can tell you, if you've been in that situation, uh, I have a complete different view on these things nowadays than I had at that time. And I, I, I'm super, super happy uh, that I got out of it. Uh, got out of it in a, in, in a way that I feel comfortable. Uh, you know, two years ago, I would have not participated in this conversation. Uh, now I, 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 I'm enjoying again being on the water, although I still have hesitations. Uh, I'm not certainly not going out with anyone. Uh, so, you know, it has changed my life. Yeah? And, and I think uh, uh, that will not happen to everybody. No, not for, for sure not. Uh, none of the people that I know have had this. So my wife didn't have it. Nobody had it. But it happened to me and I'm a pretty, yeah, well brought up bloke that didn't have such things before. So, well, yeah. it's it. Thank you very much indeed for telling us that must have been difficult because it is important to hear that, Rene. Uh, and all I can say is that I'm very pleased. I'm sure Dick is that you're now over it and that you're now running this fantastic um, Goulet uh, company in the med there, uh, which people can come. And I've been on one of your boats and. Uh, it seems an absolute joy. And that has to be um, the other side of this black time. Yeah, I know. You know, if you find a way to get out of that and to come over that, and I was lucky to find a therapist that I could uh, work with. And, and, you know, it's also maybe I was lucky there. Um, but uh, and if you find your way out of that, but it's not easy. It's not like, OK, there is a simple cure for it. I know a lot of people who will never recover from it. And uh, I know that you will never completely recover from, from it, but you will find a new life. And, and, and uh, I'm, I can easily talk about it now. And I, I also uh, the determination to what and what not to do under these circumstances for anyone who's going to go on an adventure like that. And I would absolutely advise anyone who can do and go on an adventure like that and go sailing to remote areas, uh, but, 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 but be prepared, be aware, and it makes the determination not to do something stupid even bigger than it did before. Yeah? Okay. I mean, I was a pretty loose guy. I'm not so loose anymore about that. So as, uh, as they say on the Today programme, uh, well, um, uh, uh, Prime Minister, this is a yes or no answer. Would you go back there, Rene? No. Okay. And that was a one-word answer. Mm. And, and that is notable because it's you know, very clear. It's also notable that that is the first time in Rene's life I'm certain he's ever given a one-word answer. <laughs> I think I think we should also say, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'd uh, like to say a big thank you to Rene and uh, a big plug for his company, uh, Flacker Sailing, 
which is his uh, Gulet uh, sailing company in Turkey. If you want to go and have a real experience of proper sailing and proper Turkey, uh, Renault's without any doubt the guy uh, to do it with, and uh, uh, and he's very capable Turkish crews. Yeah, we are happy to have all of you on board uh, whenever you are. Uh, when you want to discover this coast, uh, while I look out my window here, I look onto the island of Kos. The Greek islands are nearby. It is an absolute blast uh, to, to sail here in one of the most friendly sailing areas in the world. And for anyone experienced and non-experienced, if you're an experienced sailor but want to just have another view of it, then you're most welcome to come check out our uh, website, www.flaka.nl or our Instagram, Flaka Sailing. I hope I've inspired some people there today and I hope uh, I'll be back on one of your podcasts. Yes, well, thank you very much, Rene, and of course... Listen, guys, if you decide for a present or payment, uh, just let me know, yeah? <laughs> don't make it too big. I don't know if I have space in my back. <laughs> <laughs> You know which whiskey I like, Dick, and not the sort of cherry one. Yeah, sorry, it's a, your line's gone funny, Breno. <laughs> All right, guys, have a nice afternoon. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs> Um, thank you very much indeed for lending us your ears. If you enjoy what you're hearing, then please subscribe to us. Or even better, leave us a review. Tell us where we're going wrong or where we're going right. Always good to hear from you. Thank you very much. Well, I'll tell you what, um, that was brilliant. Uh, what an interesting guy. Uh, and what a lovely man as well. I'm very open. Um, I, <laughs> I envy his view as well. He's looking out over Cos. I'm looking out over Canvey Island. There is a difference, <laughs> but no, seriously, he was a great guy. He's, uh, he, you know, Dick, you're right. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy, and I must tell you, I think it was incredibly brave of him to really tell us exactly what had happened to him in the post-traumatic stress disorder and the meltdown. Because, as I said, you know, I consider him quite a good friend of mine. I haven't seen him. Uh, hell of a lot since thailand but we became very good friends there and but i have seen him uh over the last 12 months quite often while i've been in turkey um with white dragon and i sussed that something had changed in him but actually i, I don't feel i perhaps i you know it's not something you go and start asking somebody out the blue is it excuse me no. if you had a nervous breakdown but <laughs> Unless you're me. Yeah, but he's he's been very honest and very frank and, you know, exposed his soul and, and good on you, Rene. Uh, good on you, Rene. It was a great story. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> as I said right at the end, and I think he couldn't add to anything to how he answered your question, would you, do, would you go there again? Mm. And it's the only time I've ever heard Rene give a one-word answer. It was just no. And that's the end of that subject, wasn't it? It was, it was just no. Yeah. It was. It was indeed no. It was. It was excellent that he should reveal the fact that he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Not an easy thing to do. Usually, hear it coming from the mouths of people who've done a term in Northern Ireland or Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere like that. So uh, clearly, it was, you know, a, a, a very raw experience for him. So anyway, I'm glad he's over it now. Yeah, me too. You know, I mean. Uh... I think it was a, a, a very big ask um, 
for anybody to try and lead 30 boats. Mm. 30 boats. Yeah, absolutely. Th- leading, trying to lead 30 boats across the English Channel is gonna be is gonna be aggravation. Yeah. But 30 boats on that run from you know Sri Lanka uh up through the Red Sea of Turkey. My goodness, I, I wouldn't fancy it. Thing. No. I, I'm not afraid to tell you. I just oh, and, and I, I will tell you, as I said, about when we're talking about um uh you know, would we go there again? Um I kind of feel that there is there are some answers that can easily be solved for Papua New Guinea. And I think that most the most other incidents I've had around the world uh, have been at the you know behest of what amounts to opportunistic crime, not organised crime, and not organised. And I've got to tell you, you can't get me to go in any of those regions. I'm just why why load the dice that against your favour? Why do that? No. So you know. But anyway, it was a great story and great fun and yeah. uh, well fun. Fun. It was funny. He is a funny bloke, yeah. and he's good. You know, he doesn't exactly keep his uh, light under a bushel. You might say, no, as they he, use the English uh, phrase. He's uh, he tells you how it is. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, that's about it for this week, I guess, uh, Dick. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, so, as we close up, have you got any uh, interesting? Dick Durham anecdotes or catchphrases. I know you like to finish with one. I think a lot of our listeners may well have heard about the thespian and Hollywood actor Johnny Depp. I was I like him myself, but he's been accused of of being um, typecast of, of not stretching himself enough. And apparently, all the, the Hollywood studios have got together and said, "You've got to be more flexible, Johnny." So. Um, He's taken note of that, and uh, he's made, he's remade, or he's remaking one of his classic films. It's to be called Pilates of the Caribbean. Good <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they get worse, Dick. It's really bad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll just say uh, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>